This week on Inside Marketing, we'll be talking about why now is the time for CMOs to really step up and be leaders within their organizations. I'll be joined by Dan White, author of The Smart Marketing Book and The Soft Skills Book. So join us on Inside Marketing as we talk about why now is the time for CMOs, only on this week's Inside Marketing. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions. Hello and welcome to Inside Marketing. As I said in the intro, I am joined by Dan White, who's the author of Smart, the Smart Marketing book and also the Soft Skills book. So Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi there. Good to be here. Yeah, great to have you. By the way, first thing before we get started, the second book, the Soft Skills book, that's just recently come out, isn't it? Yeah, that's brand new. I mean, I've literally just uh, yesterday received my pre, pre-release copies. So it's nice to see it in physical form. Yeah. Um, so it's not even out yet. It's coming out in a week or so. Oh, very good. Um, and we'll touch on that later on, but uh, well done. It's an achievement writing a book. I always have an idea of writing a book and then, or a thought, a kind of longing to, but I just can't face it. It's just too, well, it's too much. I've written two books, but they did both take me 30 years to write, in fact. So, right. uh, yeah. You're not selling this to me well. I, I'm not doing one. Grant, that's fine. You made my mind up. I've, I've done the right <laughs> thing. Um, we'll get on that later. But listen, I just want to chat because you wrote uh, an article in today's Irish Times and it's called Why Organisations Should Be Led by the CMO. So first of all, it's a really good read. It's a great read. I really enjoyed it. And I read a lot of these things and a lot of articles from marketing. So it's a really interesting topic. So I'd recommend anyone who's listened to, to check that out and read it. So let's start off there because a lot of interesting points in it. And the first thing I want to pick, the, the first point I want to pick up, because it's one that resonates a lot with me and Dentsu, because like Dentsu, we're an entrepreneurial company by nature. And the way we've done, I've been, I'm in the business over 20 years. And, and what we've what we've done quite a lot is we've acquired and bought a lot of small businesses. And they tend to be, well, small by nature, but they tend to be led by innovative entrepreneurial people. And, and they're small and those people have visions and all the staff that work for them then buy into that vision. But yeah. what happens quite a lot, and again, this is only my perspective, so not a Dentsu official perspective, just my point of view. I find a lot of those businesses that we buy, but they end up kind of, when they get subsumed into the broader Dentsu culture and they, they lose their ethos and that entrepreneurial vision that they had, they kind of just slowly peter away. So they were brilliant businesses at the start when they were small. Then they come into us and the, and the, the promise of scaling up huge is really exciting for them. But more often than not, it doesn't work. And we fold them into another company. The person ends up leaving and the business kind of just kind of withers away a little bit. And, you know, it happens within, you know, usually after the earnouts finished and maybe it's people lose their passion. But that's something that you talked about in the book. Um, You make a great point about that in the article and how important that is. And you actually talked about Apple. So we just start off there because that's where the article picks up. So you just talk to me about your view on that. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, I, I spent a lot of my career at WPP, uh, and there were lots of acquisitions uh, into my world and, mm-hmm. and into my companies, etc. And yeah, that I've experienced the same. That entrepreneurial spirit can often, in fact, almost always does seem to peter out when the the, the figurehead, who's often the founder, uh, leaves for whatever reason, you know, after their earnout or whatever. Um, I've seen that a lot, and I, I can I can imagine why that is. I think it's because those people, you know. For a founder of a company, the entrepreneur, there's there's not much blurring between the different roles. You know, they are the figurehead, the people who are most passionate about their products and or service. Mm-hmm. You know, they're the ones that made it happen. They've been good communicators uh, to get to get funding and to get bought, etc. Yeah. So, it, you know, and I think when that figurehead leaves, it's quite difficult for the company to carry on and be such a success. And I mean, Apple was, a, you know, one of the most famous examples of a company that kind of lost its way when one of its key, most charismatic founders was when Steve Jobs left. Um, he was away for, I think, like 12 years. Mm. And when he came back, that was the start of the rejuvenation of 
of the whole company. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be the case. I mean, I think the, the key thing is getting that founder to to carry on being involved in the business if you can. And I think Body Shop is quite a good example um, of, of actually keeping that ethos going. Yeah. Uh, over, over the longer term, you know, and keep, you know, to, to do a good job. Yeah, it, it is hard. And I guess quite often when you can't have different cultures in companies. So when, when there's a bit of a culture clash and when the smaller company is acquired by the larger company, the larger company culture tends to reign supreme. And then that often frustrates, you know, the, the people who they, they end up saying, why did I buy into this? And then it just doesn't work. But yeah, yeah, I mean, it is. It's like the article's really interesting because, I, you know, I hear a lot about, and I guess it makes sense, you know, culture comes from top down, the very, very top down. So it has to be CEO. It can't be something that you manufacture in a marketing department. But um, you think that a lot of these organizations in marketing, it's time for marketing and particularly the CMO to really step up to the plate. So why do you think the CMO should step up and lead more? And why shouldn't that just be the, the role of the CEO? Well, I, I mean, it all depends actually on the personalities of the leaders in the company, you know. Um, and I have met uh, and come across CEOs who are brilliant at leading and uh, uh, in that way, in terms of inspiring. Although in other companies, the CEO perhaps hasn't got the same sort of charisma, especially if they didn't found the company, etc. Mm. Um, and I just think that when you think about the personality of someone who gets to that kind of level in marketing, they tend to be quite charismatic. They tend to mm. be enthusiastic. They tend to be very good persuasive communicators because that's what marketing's all about. So sometimes they're much better placed to, to lead the charge, you know, and to inspire uh, employees and um, and excite the, the wider industry. So I actually think sometimes a CMO, you know, they don't have to be given legal responsibility of, of the CEO, but in terms of being the seen-to-be mm. person who, who is the key advocate I think they're really well placed. Yeah. So I do worry about marketing sometimes, and, and this has come up a few times in the podcast. So I worry about the role that marketing plays in organizations today and that it's losing a seat or its presence or its voice, uh, if you will, at the top table. So, you know, I've worked in some great campaigns, I've worked in the business 20 odd years. So when I think about brilliant campaigns and brilliant brands that have really transformed business like Cadbury, this came up a couple of, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Bill Rumble, that guerrilla campaign, really turned Cadbury's around. It was struggling at the time. And this ad campaign just really captured the imagination and transformed the business completely brave. Um, never worked in link. Like, it didn't work in link testing. It was bombed. And Phil Rumble decided, no, this is what I'm going to do. We need to disrupt um, the way marketing is done. And it completely changed that brand. Um, so when I look around, I see marketing doing that less and less today. So um, there is a lot of debate. And there's one school of thought that business has become... Because it's run by, by financial people, shall we say, and there's nothing wrong with financial people by any means. They're great, they're great people, but they tend to be deterministic and marketing is probabilistic and that's that's just what happens. So, uh, you know, and this comes up a lot of things. Marketing probably hasn't been able to stand up for itself, to defend itself. So, you know, the, the debate of the financial CFO will say it's a cost and the CMO will say it's an investment. But I don't think marketing's been able to defend its case. So, Rory Sutherland makes a brilliant point about how value is created in the mind and the and the finance guy thinks value is created in the factory. And it's a really interesting point, but I just think marketing hasn't done a good enough job. And we can touch on some of the reasons why in a minute. But when you talk about, again, in your article, you talk about P&G, how they're a marketing-led company. So what's your view on marketing? And do you think, do you agree that marketing is losing its way, losing its, its seat at the top table or its voice at that table to a degree? I think it's kind of risen and fallen, if you see what I mean, over time. Um, in, in my in my span uh, mm. during duration in which I've been working, which is since 1990, effectively. 
And I think it rose, actually, uh, towards the end of the 90s and the early 2000s in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think marketing played a pretty exciting industry to be in. I remember the, the Cannes Lions Festival in June each year was quite a... Quite something. You're quite a lavish affair. Actually quite yeah. decadent. But yeah. but it was celebratory of the marketing and advertising universe. And I think, you know, the, like the example I gave of uh, P&G, and Jim Stengel was the chief marketing officer for P&G in the early uh, early and mid-2000s, up to 2008. Um, and he did an incredible job of raising the profile. And it wasn't just him. It was also um, Keith Weed at Unilever a little bit later. And uh, Diageo were talking about the, the importance and power of, of brands and branding. And advertising, some, some of the most creative advertising I can remember was around that time. I think since then, it's definitely swung more, like you say, mechanistic. Um, a lot of the way marketing is evaluated is through digital performance metrics, which tend to be biased more in terms of short-term responses rather than longer-term brand building value, you know, profit and value in the longer term. But years ago, I remember when digital advertising came in, this is going back a bit, um, the big argument was people going, mm, I don't trust digital advertising. I'm not sure about it. I don't think it works. I'm, so I'm sceptical. You know, we know TV works. We know outdoor works. Yeah. Prove to me. Prove to me it's got uh, any role. Mm. And then just the other day, I was in a meeting where it was the complete flip side, complete yeah. flip side. You know, it's now I get digital. I know how to do digital. I can see the response. I'm not sure TV has any value. And I think, you know, obviously you do tend to get these pendulum swings. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we're, I think we're in one where digital is king and, and short-termism is, is dominant. Yeah, it's a great point because I, I do remember that as well. I think there was, there was an agency that, that closed down because the MD at the time said, this digital thing is not going to last. That's not going to carry away. It's not going to last. And they were shut down, literally shut down. So you, you yeah. talked, you mentioned this earlier on and you, you make the point that CMOs, they're natural born leaders. So, um, and that's, well, the great ones are anyway, obviously not all of them, but the last 18 months, pretty tough in terms of, well, tough on everybody, but tough on marketing and tough on the pressures within organizations. So in, in the article, you're saying this is the time now, the circumstance at the moment and just the way life is, it's now time to, for CMOs to kind of grab things by the neck and, and really stay up as opposed to I think a lot of marketing departments and marketers have maybe kept their head down and said it's not the time to be you know to be seen to be doing branding or long-term stuff it's about just getting through this batten down the hatch and get through it but you argue the opposite say now is the time for marketing to step up yeah there's quite a few reasons why I think that I mean actually one is that we know that in I know this wasn't a a recession per se because the cause of it was the pandemic not economic trouble per se Um, but if you look at previous recessions the brands that continued to invest in brand over that period emerged from the recessions much stronger yeah. than the others. That, that's absolutely established. And I think there's a strong belief that any um, brands that were able to continue to advertise during the pandemic are going to come out of it really well. I think that's already starting to happen. But obviously, there are some companies that, that literally were so decimated by the pandemic financially. There was no budget. And of course, you have to cut whatever budget you can in marketing and sort of training and things like that. I've got to be the first to go. And that's quite right. But assuming we believe we're starting to emerge from the pandemic, actually, even those companies that were most affected, those are the ones that need marketing now more than more than any. Mm. They're going to have to reset their thinking. They're going to have to think about getting back on that path to growth. Uh, and, and the CMO needs to take the lead in, in shaping that path. A big job for some sectors is just reminding people that the sector is back. Yeah. And that it's, you know, and the things they've forgotten about or haven't done for a long time, um, you, they can again. So the reminder uh, effect is going to be really, really important. 
And then there's, of course, the companies, the other companies, the luckier companies that haven't been so much affected or even have benefited from some of the changes in society. They can uh, they can really leverage this opportunity. You know, if they can, um, we've got a lot of pent up demand. People haven't haven't been spending as much. Yeah. They're now looking for interesting, exciting products and experiences because they're going to live life to the full. And, and marketing can uh, tap into that and deliver against that if they've got the budget to tell people about it. So whichever way I think about it, I think it's the time for yeah. marketers yeah. to their time. Yeah, I agree. Um, and again, you talk there a lot about, uh, again, it's the why the CMO really needs to step up. It's because they, they're quite often visionary people, the CMOs. And, you know, you talk about the importance of having a vision and setting a vision in the article, which I, I totally agree with. But I always assume that this should be coming from the CEO. So, but you say no, Demar, it, it's probably the CMO is the person who should really own that and step up because they're more capable of doing that. You think it more, it naturally sits with their, in their remit. So why do you think that? And not the CEO. Yeah, well, I just think that they're better communicators uh, quite often. I mean, I, I mean, I know. Look, I do apologise to your listeners if they already know this story because it is a bit of a cliche. But I just, I, I'm going to mention it anyway, just in case anyone hasn't, because I think everyone should know. It's, it's very famous. I'll, I'll do it quickly. Um, President John Kennedy, when he visited NASA, have you heard this story? In, I have. In yeah. Anyway. All it was was he was doing a, a meet and greet with everyone and he happened to come across someone, uh, a janitor, uh, and he asked, oh, what do you do for NASA? And the reply was, I'm hoping to put a man on the moon, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant uh, way of remembering that actually you really want the vision to be shared by every employee, yeah. not just the CEO. And I think there's a danger that if it's the CEO who is the only, you know, the main one who talks about the vision, then it can be a bit distant, especially if they're not as charismatic, for example, or as, as good at conveying yeah. the idea around, you know, the company's mission and vision. Um, so the CMO, I, I almost think that the, the C-suite should be competing with each other almost as who can be the biggest, best advocates mm. of where, where the company's going and, and to believe in it. Um, but I, I think actually, because this is a communication job, effectively, mm. um, the CMO should, again, be the person who um, who leads it and make sure, you know, I've, I've been in a situation where I, when I've been a, a CMO and I've often briefed my CEO to say, don't forget to mention the mission here. And, you know, yeah. be part of a reminder that it needs constant reinforcement. Yeah, yeah. good point. It is. You're right, because they tend to be, by definition, better communicators because that's their job. And so, yeah, no, I, I agree with that point. And, and maybe that's you know, the CMO should be stepping up, become more vocal in, in at boardroom tables and, and bring the CEO on that journey, like getting them on board, yeah. obviously, but, yeah, yeah. but leading it. You also talk about the importance of inspiring people to follow you because like, there's no point in it being visionary, but you can't take people on that journey, which you haven't got the kind of the charisma or the ability to bring people on the journey with you. So visionary is great, but it's not, it's no use without inspiring people to follow you. So there's a lovely example in the article where you talked about Kodak. I actually didn't know this. I didn't know. I knew a bit oh, about yeah. Kodak, but I didn't actually know this detail. So just talk to me about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, this is an example of, you know, if people don't, companies that aren't very consumer centric, and if you don't have a CMO who will champion the consumer, you could, you know, you can, you can lead a company into trouble. I mean, the story of Kodak was that there was an engineer uh, a guy called Steve Sasson, who way back in 1975, effectively he invented the digital camera. He mm. came up with the first ever way of doing it, and even came up, you know, came up with the prototype to prove it poss- would be possible. And he took this to the board of Kodak at the time, who you know obviously agreed that it's ingenious. But according to to Sasson, they actually asked him not to tell anyone else about it. Mm. And the, the thing, the the reason for that, I think, is that Kodak was. Um, it made most of its money from selling photographic film, you know, paper and the chemicals yeah. to, to develop things, um, not not so much the cameras. 
And they treated this new concept as a potential threat and continued to try and squash it and yeah. avoid it as digital photography started to come in. And of course, as we know, other companies then dominated the, yeah. the whole area and and their whole industry, the basis of their whole business model fell apart. And I think that's a good example of you need someone in a business who's going to be championing what the needs and desires of, of the customer. Yeah. You know, and then if you don't do that, there is a chance you will get disrupted out of business. And that does happen. And yeah. that's not a not a rare story at all. Yeah, it's a, it's crazy to think about that. You know, their business could have been completely different, could have been like, you know, pioneers and uh, continue to be pioneers that they were. So, it's, yeah, it's a crazy story. But no. I mean, the irony, the irony is their, um, their communications at the time. Uh, and for a long time, um, I don't even remember it, but it was like Kodak moment. And I remember mm. even a, a, a branding device where they tapped the box or something. It's a very vague memory. It's, it's, I'm getting on a bit, but in the 70s was a long time ago even for me. And so it's, um, you know, they already had a brand that was talking about what they do for customers is help them capture memories. Yeah. You know, important personal things, which, are, which memories are. And imagine if they had carried on seeing that as their brand rather than people who made paper and yeah. film. Yeah, they they could have been um they could have been the you know the the Facebook of the future, let yeah. alone a digital you know camera leader. Absolutely, um, yeah. When you think about it, that that was actually their brand, but obviously their their the leadership didn't believe that was the brand. They thought it was just some just some columns that helped a bit. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Rather yeah. than fundamental to their to their essence. Yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great story. Yeah, no, I love it because I mean I'd heard about I, I knew what happened in their business, but it wasn't I, I never really thought about it. Mm. And one of the things that comes up, we did touch on this earlier, is this kind of eternal debate. The, the point and I've talked about this a lot. The big we kind of talk about oh, it's the CFO's fault, the big bad CFO, the B encounter. He doesn't understand marketing, doesn't understand the way life works. He just wants things in spreadsheets. You know, if he can't see a guaranteed return on marketing, then he he's not going to do it. So. Part of this problem is, as I talked about it, it's it's probabilistic and business culture. It tends to be deterministic, so that's what they want. They want certainty. They want to avoid risk, and they want they want to see everything in the spreadsheet. And like we know, we we know marketing is not like that. So you talk about you put it nicely in the article. You say men are from Venus and women are from Mars. And you say well, in that analogy, CMOs and CFOs are galaxies apart. So how important is it for a good marketer to really be able to get the CFO on side? And how does a CMO or like anybody generally in marketing go about doing that? Yeah, well, I think the best CMOs are very good, they're very persuasive people for a start, and they're very good at understanding what CFOs need and want, you know, need to be shown, basically. So I don't, yeah, I, it's tempting to put this, you know, I was a CMO for eight years, so I'm, I'm biased, and, you know, you, you can you do see sort of um, things through your lens more than the other person's lens. But I did learn a lot, actually, from the CFO I was working with at the time. Uh, just explaining what they, explain to me what they need. Mm. And it's not that you say it's not that they don't like to give money out. Well, they, I mean, it's their job. They don't. Sure. They don't like give money out. What are you talking about? Well, they don't like to. I mean, but it's a good personality trait to only yeah. give a department money if they believe it will give not only a good return but a better return than giving it to another part of the business. Mm. You know, I mean, that's what they do, and they will invest money. But the higher the risk, the the, the more gamble. You know, they need to understand at least the risk they're taking. And that's like their job really is to, yeah. to balance risk versus reward. And that's what they're brilliant at. And marketers are not so good at. You know, marketers will go, oh no, believe me, it'll work. I'm yeah. sure it will. Let's spend it all. And actually, not all, it doesn't always. And yeah. I think the key to being a successful CMO is just understanding how to couch everything, everything uh, in terms of, well, this is the investment. These are uh, the our estimates of the return we'll get. 
and both in short and long term, because they can be quite different. They're often very different. You know, the short term return might be small or or break even. The long term might be huge or all the other around. And to to explain the thinking and also give kind of best case and worst case scenarios and why and mitigation. So you're just starting to use, you know, even the word mitigation is a useful word to throw in yeah. there when you're talking to CFO to make them realise that you thought about this stuff. What, you know, how will we check? You know, what's the governance? How will we know halfway through with all the money we spend whether we're on track or not? Mm. And it, you know, what we'll do if we're not? And you know, when will we make that decision? All this, all this kind of planning, business yeah. planning stuff. It's not actually rocket science, but it, it's an important. It's kind of like it can't be sidelined versus the more creative, fun stuff uh, that you do within marketing. Yeah, and we well, like we have it all the time. My point of view is, I'm saying, like the CFO. The answer in our business is always when we kind of have a bit of a a bit of a bad run in business, we lose an account. The answer is always to get us back online, we reduce costs. And that's reductive. And the CFO's mindset is always reductive. Recalibrate, because I guess it's the easy thing to fix. You can get the balance sheet back on track by letting people go or whatever the case may be. Whereas marketing, I say, well, instead of looking at it that way, why don't we look to be expansive? Why don't we look to increase demand? And that's like advertising looks to create demand. So I think it, it we just yeah. have different mindsets. Um, but I take your point. I think you have to bring, it's not enough to say, trust me, it's going to work. I just know a hunch that you kind of have to be able to provide a case, which I don't think is unreasonable for, you know, a CFO to say, give me some confidence that this is going to deliver something at some point. Give me a comparison. Yeah. Give me a yeah. benchmark or something's happened in a similar company or even even an anecdote for another, another yeah. company. It can be helpful. Um, yeah. But I think I think that balance between short and long term is crucial because... Mm. You know, like CFOs have always explained to me, you know, there is no long term if you don't survive the short term. So yeah. if you have to cut some budgets to keep your cash flow above zero, you know, yeah. over, but you know, the near future, then do what you have to do. Yeah, yeah, but, I, I guess that's but, fair. Yeah. yeah. But the, the, the other way around is also important, which is that once there is some money in the system, it should be reinvested for, mm. the, for the longer term. Yeah. Because it, you get a better return. Yeah. So one of the things, again, and I don't know the answer to this, but it keeps coming up. CFOs, they're smart people. Finance guys, they're clever. They're smart. They want data. They want proof. We've never had more proof that investing in long-term work. There has never been more data, material, articles, books, video, you name it. It is unbelievably well-documented and evidence-based case studies to show that it works. And yet we still have this debate about long and short-term why is it's never going to go away? Why is that? Why, why like if these people? I, I talk about these people as if they're like a different breed. But like, yeah. if finance guys need data and evidence, there's there's loads of it. Why do we still have this debate? No, that's a good question. I, I suspect it's something to do with prove it works for us. Mm. You know that classic thing. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But we're different. Every case is different, and there is some truth, isn't there, to the fact that every business is a little bit different from other businesses. You know, no, no, no two are the same. Mm. The circumstances are a bit different, and. There are variables involved here. Yeah. Um, and with short term, the things you can test it yeah. with your business. You can actually test it because you'll find out soon. Usually a short term means a significant response in a short period of time. Obviously, that's what it means. Yeah. So therefore, you can spend little and still be able to detect the response and measure it. Yeah. And you'll find out in the short term. So then you can go, okay, we've done our trial which is good business practice, isn't it? Obviously, yeah, yeah. do a trial. Go, right, now we're going to invest a lot in doing this stuff ongoing. Long term, inevitably, can never happen that way because a, it's the effects are more spread out over time. So, if you don't invest much, you won't be able to measure it properly. You mm-hmm. have to spend a lot, and you have to wait the long term to know whether it's worked or not. So it's like it's never going to happen, is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know how we get around that. I think again, marketers need to get better at, I guess, marshalling that evidence in the most credible way 
as a reminder as part of your business case. Yeah, but I, yeah. I do see your point. And I guess it's about meeting both ways. I think CFOs also need to take responsibility to kind of learn a bit about actually the, the proof that there is about the long-term effects of different types of marketing investment and factoring that in. Yeah. So yeah, it's a bit of both sides, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess somewhere in the world there's a there's a finance podcast going on and the finance guys are going, why is, why is my marketing department always telling me the answer is because we don't spend enough money? So I guess, you know, I'm seeing yeah. it, I'm seeing it no, through yeah, my no, own no, perspective. Yeah, you're right. So, I bet there is. There is, yeah. On the article as well, I, lo- I loved your Nintendo reference in the article. So again, another just a, another brilliant company that's marketing-led. Um, talk to me about that. Talk to me about why you love them and why they're a brilliant example of somebody who's a, a vision, really visionary leader and who, in all but type, you say, it leads it and he, it, as a CMO. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I actually love Nintendo. I mean, for lots of reasons. I, mean, I do actually love their games and their consoles. You know, I'm a big fan. I just I think there's something special about them. Um, but... The the guy we're talking about, which is Shigeru Miyamoto. I'm glad you said he, that. I was not going to get it right. Uh, I just had to glance down at my notes to make sure I got the pronunciation. <laughs> I literally looked it up, and you know you can do the little yeah. Um, press the little uh, speaker icon. Yeah, um, he's fantastic, and actually he's been around with the company for like decades and decades. You know, he's there as a young man, and he's now in his uh, I don't know exactly actually, but he's got to be late 50s, 60s, early 60s, something like that. Anyway, and you know over that time there've been lots of presidents. But he's the famous one. He's the figurehead. He's the he's the guy that they turn to when they're doing their big reveal of the new products to enthusiastically show off the product and talk about how they're excited to be able to bring in new audiences, which they did so well mm. with Nintendo Wii, for example, and the Switch more recently, you know, broadening the audience, wanting everyone to enjoy it. He's, he, like, he personifies customer centricity and enthusiasm for what the company stands for. And it's infectious. You know, yeah. you listen to um, what he writes about, you, you hear him on podcasts, you see him on, on YouTube, and you go, you just, I don't know, I'm smiling now because I'm mm. thinking about the positivity and the enthusiasm he exudes. And I think that is leadership as much as, and then what the, C, what the CE, um, CEOs of those companies do is they steer a good business ship. Yeah. You know, they're not in the limelight so much, uh, nowhere near as much, um, but they are... Yeah. They're almost serving um, Miyamoto. Right, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that round. And that is a true customer-centric business where you say, look, the, the CMO is delivering what we know will drive value and profit and and, and penetration, uh, which is growth, you know. Um, what we do is make sure that he's got his the budget that the, he and his team need to make the games mm-hmm. um, and to deliver new exciting consoles and experiences. That is, I, I love uh, Nintendo as a company, a uh, creative company. Yeah, Brilliant. he's their Steve Jobs, like just what yeah. what a, what a, an inspirational leader. Um, and so this has come up a little, I've read a lot about it. I've had people on the podcast, like we keep reading. I, I know you have to be careful what you read. Cause when you read anything, you have to look at who's writing it and, and is it self-serving, serving their interests. Like I read a lot about the disruption of marketing, the death of agencies, the death of the, the big holding company model. You know, Sorrell's always saying that, that, you know, those businesses are dinosaurs, that you know, they're dead. Um, it, it, of course, it's going to serve his interests. But isn't it right though, when we, just everything we talked about, if marketing struggles to quantify its worth and its value um, and, uh, you know, and its reason for being, it is in danger. It's, it's vulnerable if, if it can't prove its worth, isn't that? And I think the agencies like as well, like I'm thinking particularly about agencies again, this is because that's my area. So do you agree with that? That should agencies be a little bit worried that if they can't really nail this and go, this is the value we create and really stand up for themselves and, sh- and prove their worth that, that they're going to struggle? 
Actually, I do think there's a risk that the um, which agency are you thinking more mainly the sort of creative agencies? Yeah, thinking any agency. I mean, the, the word agent is yeah by definition a middleman. So the media side, I think mm. too much of the media business has been about scale. The scale is, yeah. is is decreasingly important when you trade programmatically. And I genuinely think media agencies and, and creative agencies provide a huge amount of value. And I think on a media agency side of things, they just haven't done a good job of showing what else they do apart from buying media. Buying media is only a really yeah, small part of what they do. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I think um, if you mean by agencies, all the different agencies out there, yeah. big and small, no, I think agencies will survive. I mean, yes, some of some of those roles will be disintermediated. Mm-hmm. God, that's as hard as Miyamoto. Um, but um, because you know, because technology sometimes does that, yeah. doesn't it? If there are ways to do it, and the client can do it effectively themselves without any skills to be learned, etc. But I think certain things that agencies do, like creative, coming up with creative ideas. Mm-hmm. I don't think that, although it may be less in vogue than it has been in years, years gone by, that will swing back because, again, there is a big uh, push right now. You, you, you look at LinkedIn and it's full of conversations about actually advertising isn't um, very differentiated at the moment. Yeah. It is quite mechanistic and there are examples of creativity that suddenly you get 10 times the ROI. So yeah. the, the money, that the proof will illustrate that. So creativity, I, I don't, that aspect of agency, mm. what, what agencies deliver, I think you're going to need that. Although there's even then, there's a risk of crowdsourcing ways of coming up with ideas. Yeah, you know, I- and um, Crowdspring and, and the others. Or, but so long as you know an agency can deliver that kind of service efficiently, then I think you know that that won't go away. And, and again, mm. this uh, you, you know strategic thinking is a speciality. Someone somewhere needs to do it, and mm. if you don't have it in your business, you're going to need to have an agent of some sort, a consultant, yeah. to help think that through with experience. Um, and content production isn't easy, but again, you know. Yeah. So I think all the I think the, the main ingredients, most of them are going to be continue to exist in one shape or form. Mm-hmm. And then of course, actually, there's the bringing it all together, which is what I think the traditional, traditionally, the big creative agencies used to do. Yeah. You know, they'd be a hub of all this. Yeah. And and again, someone somewhere needs to still do that, and it's increasingly complex. So again, that's another specialism. Yeah. That um, ad agencies uh, in particular might be able to reclaim potentially. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I agree with all that. It is complex. And when you think about marketing, the job of somebody in marketing, whether that's agency or client side, the role has has changed, has evolved over time. I mean, everything has, but marketing has become increasingly much more data-driven. So in your opinion, what do you think makes somebody a great marketer, like beyond technical skills? What do you think makes them a brilliant marketer? What do you need to have? Well, I think it relates a bit back to what we just said. The world of marketing is very complex. There are lots of different moving parts. Uh, especially in the world of media. So it's very fragmented. You, you sometimes have to deal with multiple agencies when the past you do for one. So I think, I mean, number one, it would be collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The ability to get on and have a, a base level of understanding of the different disciplines is quite important. You know, so having that generalist, uh, they call it T-shaped learning. Yeah, you know? yeah. So you're okay, you're, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? You're you're vertically marketing, but you need to know enough across the yeah, T to yeah. be able to engage with digital um, and um, media people and um, operational people, sales people, creative people, everything. IT increasingly uh, as well. So I do think you need to have that sort of generalist understanding. But more importantly, you're probably going to learn that by being a good listener, you know, by, by networking and by listening and asking lots of questions, especially early on, so you know what, what's going on. So collaboration and networking. And then like we talked about earlier, communication and persuasion skills. Yeah. yeah. So communication and persuasion, both to be the advocate of what the brand and company is all about internally and externally, 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, and to persuade persuasion skills, persuading your CFO of the, of the business case. So that's number sort of two. And then the third one is is more external, which is about, you know, presenting and public speaking yeah. and helping to raise the profile of your brand and your company and being that figurehead like uh, Miyamoto does so well. So I'd say those are the the, the three. And actually, that does take us back to what you said at the start. You know, you know I said that um, I, had, I had two books that took yeah. 30 years to produce. Um, the first one was the smart marketing book because, you know, that was my special, specialism and that's what I wrote about. And I've been collecting notes over 30 years about everything I've learned about marketing, marketing analytics, uh, yeah. marketing strategy, et cetera, et cetera, marketing execution. Um, and but alongside that, I kind of realized in my career as it went on, especially that I'm only going to succeed if my soft skills, understanding business practices as well, whether they need to be equally strong. So it's like yin and yang. Um, so that's what the second book was. It's ah, okay. a skills book. So it's kind of like they're meant to literally go together back yeah. to back. Um, and that covers the th- kind of the things we just talked about. You so, know, what, you, so what you, you mean by soft skills? What, just give just for a second, just chat to me about the book. What what are those soft skills that you think are so, so important that are talked about in the book? Well, the number one one, actually, the, the, the most important one that I back refer to more than any is actually listening skills. So I've concluded that listening skills are the single most important skill okay. for any professional or even any human being, I believe. Mm-hmm. So that, but I mean, the way the, the, the book works is, you know, partly you need to kind of look after yourself, handle yourself, manage yourself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's things, you know, you have a growth mindset, managing your time, your mental health, et cetera. Then after that, it's about other people and and uh, how you interact with other people and get get along and collaborate well, and then how you actually manage people, which is an extension of that. You know, mm-hmm. when you're first given a team of people to look after, and you know, a CMO could be in, could be in charge of hundreds of people if if it's a large company. Um, how do you manage manage people and teams, but also projects? I mean, how many? We all have to run projects of one type or another, but who has ever taught project management unless yeah. you're a specialist in that area? Yeah, yeah, true. How, where do you start? You're suddenly given a project you don't do. So the idea of the book is, you know, it takes you through, it handholds you, especially the first time you've come across it and gives you orientation and ideas and tips for that. And then it goes on to more communication, you know, storytelling and right. presentations and workshops and pitches, things like that. Yeah, excellent. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about you for a second. So talk to me about... It sounds like you, you've agency background, you CMO background. Give me, give me um, how did you get into marketing in the first place and what does Dan White's CV look like? And what is your primary business now and how did you end up with what you're doing right now? There'll be backstory to the thing. Um, yeah, every brand needs a backstory, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Origin story, Dan White. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, the truth is, the reason I got into marketing, and actually partly illustration is that in 1990, I left uni with my uh, partner at the time, who's now my wife. Uh, I think now, actually, nearly 30 years ago, in fact. <laughs> um, and, and she was doing a, this is going to be a long story. She was uh, doing a PGCE, you know, like a, a one-year teacher training after you've done another degree. Yeah. And that was in Leicester. So I literally drew a circle around Leicester within about an hour, hour drive kind of thing. Leicester, And then I applied for any jobs I could I could find. I'll just stay there for a year with yeah. her and then see where we go. Probably go to London like most people. Never never really did. Um, so anyway, look. It happened that on that circle was Leamington Spa, and that's where Millwood Brown was based, which is now part of Cantar. Oh, yeah, right. so yeah, market yeah. research firm. So I spent twenty, ended up spending twenty years as a market researcher. The other job interview I went to was as a graphic designer because I. Oh, and the third one was a, a computer programmer. I, I just wanted a job. Yeah. Really. Yeah, yeah. But this market research sounded like a laugh, so to speak, as we would say back in the day. Um, so I got a job there. Really loved it. Completely loved it. Got into innovation of market research services. 
uh, and understanding marketing, obviously, mm-hmm. best researchers understand marketing as well as a marketer, and eventually got a role as a chief marketing officer. So after 20 years of market research, I did about eight years as a CMO. Uh, and then so the last two years has been as an illustrator. So I finally got back to the art side of it, okay. uh, dusted off all the notes over the many years, and then wrote and drew the two books that have just, just well, one's come out and the other's just about to come out. Mm. So that's right. Yeah. So that's the, the quick version. Um, so today I do 50% of my work consultancy, uh, marketing consultancy, market mm-hmm. research consultancy as well. And 50% of my time sort of writing, drawing, and starting to do kind of keynote speaking, that kind okay. of engagement as well. So, so yes, I'm available, by the way. Just okay. <laughs> we will get onto that. I love your website, by the way, because, you know, when I was digging around and we've, when we spoke a couple of months ago now, I went on to have a look at the website. I love it. It's lovely. It's brilliant. There's loads of, it's a real treasure trove of information. Amazing articles, amazing, as you said, illustrations, just brilliant illustrations on it. Um, okay. th- here's the thing, and you give it all away free. Like anyone yeah. can take anything, you don't care. You say all you ask for is just credit me in accreditation when you're using it. So what's the deal? What's that about? Well, I kind of, well, it, I can't say it two ways. One is I'm not very good at monetizing my creative stuff. <laughs> and I, I need a CFO. Basically. You do, yeah. I, that's, you do. That's, that's, that's part of it. And the other one, is also I'm kind of playing the long game. I'm thinking, you know, I'm a big believer in building uh, a brand. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if you noticed, but I use the same two, well, three colours. I have a, a colour palette of three only. Mm. And my first two books are in two of the three colours. And even this wardrobe that I know your listeners can't see, but the, uh, the yeah. unit behind me is one of the two colours. I'm taking it quite seriously. Um, right. yeah. So the style is, I will not change that style. And I'm hoping it will become a bit of a recognisable and it's a brand, and, yeah, and yeah. I hope and believe that the content, both the drawing and the words that go next to the drawing, like on the website, yeah. um, are high quality. And so and I've touched wood, touched so far, I think it's starting to work. Yeah. As in, um, and to be honest, is it wrong to say I quite like to be a little bit famous? Is that <laughs> No, that's, yeah. I mean, look, I think it's great that you're creating tools mm-hmm. and things and services that are just going to help improve marketing generally. So just for people who are listening and who maybe don't know a lot about, can you tell Can you tell people where the website is? And just give me the 30-second elevator pitch, the sell me the vision. Yeah, it's easy to find. It's just www.smartmarketing.me. Um, and the site itself, I mean, it's dominated by the visuals. So there are there's a, a section called illustrations. It has 14 different subsections. So topics like brand development, um, communication strategy, pricing and sales teams, uh, mm-hmm. sales promotion, even things like mental processes. So if you're interested in how the brain works, how um, how attention works and how that relates to advertising, there's quite a, quite a lot actually on in that particular section. So each of those sections has about 10 or 20 diagrams, uh, hand-drawn sort of yeah. brainworks. And those are the special, that's the bit I'm passionate about. And, yeah. But also with a commentary of, of what, what it means and why it's important. Right. So yeah. you know exactly what, what it is you're seeing and why. Um, and those those images are fairly high res and can yeah. be downloaded and used free as long as you, you credit me. You know, just keep my signature on my website at the bottom. Um, anyone can use them. So they're starting to gain a bit of traction. You know, people are using them more in various ways, which leads people back to me, which is nice. There's also uh, some articles I've written, usually illustrated with, yeah. but long form, you know, more like the the, the article that I wrote, you know, in, yeah. the, in the Irish Times today. So like, um, there's also a series of articles there. The media, I would recommend the media ones in particular. They, they're, they're getting the best feedback. Okay. They seem to be quite poignant, resonant at the moment. So guiding people through media in particular. 
um yeah so that's that's my world um, and linkedin is my world so if you want to get in touch with me personally i'm happy to to, to for you to contact connect with me um via linkedin okay great and the books where can people pick up the books that they get from the website are they available on uh, the best else? places in most countries uh, from the 31st of july well pre-order now actually a few days earlier so amazon amazon apart not the us but most other countries okay amazon, um, that'll be a bit later but actually bookdepository.com will ship almost any country including us from you know, from okay. the 31st of july so yeah thanks for allowing me to plug that no problem no and i say it's it, the article is great i'd recommend people to to go and check it out the website's great definitely go have a look it's just worth having a look at a treasure trove of brilliant illustrations so that is it that's it that's all she wrote dan we're out of time thank you so much for joining me today you're very welcome. Thanks for thanks for having me. No problem. And I want to say a big thanks to Andrea on sound and Kira in marketing. And as always, thanks to our partners, Irish Times Media Solutions. If you like this episode, listen back to the other ones. There's loads. We've got 50 odd now done. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, and you can find it by simply typing Inside Marketing Irish Times into your search engine of choice. So until next time, stay safe. The Inside Marketing Podcast, brought to you by Dentsu and Irish Times Media Solutions.